Welcome to the Greater Possibilities Podcast, where we put concerns into perspective and opportunities into focus. Hi, I'm Brian Levitt. And I'm Jody Phillips. It's our first podcast of the new year, which means it's time to talk about our 2023 outlook. Joining us are Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist, and Alessio DeLongis, Global Head of Tactical Asset Allocation. Jody, welcome to 2023. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And good riddance to 2022. I wasn't really that upset to turn the calendar page this time around. Yeah, I think most investors probably felt that way. Isn't there? It's amazing how there's just something therapeutic about turning a calendar after a difficult year in the market. No, you're right. There really is. But does it really mean anything? I mean, it may be a new year, but is anything really different or has nothing changed? That actually sounds like a U2 lyric. You remember that song? About Does whether it? anything changes on New Year's Day. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. It sounds a little familiar. I mean, I, th- I think you could find strategists, pundits, the so-called expert on both sides of this debate. It's, it's very bifurcated whether anything has changed as we move into this year, if we're still grappling with all of the same challenges that we were dealing with last year. Okay. So then what's your take? I actually think things have changed. Um, you know, the good news is, and we'll talk to Christina and Alessio about this, the, the markets have had already priced in a, a fairly bad outcome. We're seeing from uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, inflation coming down, perhaps the Fed's getting closer to the end. Seems like it's becoming a better backdrop for risk assets. So it's hard to say that nothing has changed. I think quite a bit has changed. Well, that's good. There's There's still some negativity out there, though, right? I mean, but I've heard you say before that market cycles seem to be born in pessimism. So I don't know. Is is that true here? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. We obviously have some issues to deal with. Um, You know, but history suggests by the time inflation has peaked or by the time whatever challenge you're facing is starting to get better, you tend to see... uh, a better environment for markets, albeit if it's not a straight line. Um, but, but you know, we're, we're certainly getting to a better backdrop. Well, good. Well, I'm feeling hopeful. So let's continue this conversation with our guests. We're going to set the stage with Christina and then follow up with Alessio to talk about the asset all- allocation implications. That's hard to say, Brian. Asset allocation implications. Hopefully Alessio will do a better job with it than I did. So. How now, brown cow? <laughs> All right, get a little rusty for the new year. In any case, welcome, Christina. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So let's start with a quick postmortem on 2022, if we could. I mean, it's hard to remember, but at that time, no one really expected that the Fed would tighten as much as they did over the course of last year. I mean, I don't think the FOMC really expected it themselves. So, you know, how would you characterize what we've been through? Well, I know Brian referenced you too, but I'm thinking talking heads. How did we get here, right? Um, Same as it ever was. Great question. (laughs) So you're absolutely right, Jody. No one expected 2022 to play out the way it did. Um, uh, And that includes the Fed, right? If we think about December of 2021, when they were released the dot plot. Um, They anticipated that by the end of 2022, we'd be at 90 basis points for the Fed funds rate. And and then fast forward to the end of 2022, and we ended up in a far different, a far tighter place. 
Uh, so I, I like to think of, of 2022 as the year of monetary policy whiplash, which then turned into, in my opinion, when we looked at asset class returns, Annus horribilis. But it doesn't sound as, as good as, as when Queen Elizabeth said it with that great British accent. So hey, hey, 90 basis points to 450 basis points. What's the difference for markets? Exactly. It's like a rounding error. Um, so when you think about all of that tightening um, and the economy is still generally resilient, how concerned are you about the lagged effects of that policy tightening? Well, what we lived through in 2022 was a great experiment. Um, we don't know exactly how much of an impact that fast and furious tightening has had. I mean, let's face it, the Fed did not allow for enough time uh, to see the impact. And they certainly um, tightened in much larger chunks than normal. So you always, I think, in this kind of situation would worry about the potential impact on the economy, um, how much damage was done. But from everything that I can see thus far, uh, it looks like the economy has been, the U.S. economy has been very resilient. In fact, many economies around the world have been quite resilient, despite um, what has been really, really intense tightening. The Hooper family still going out to restaurants, still traveling occasionally. We're still spending some money like the rest of the Americans. <laughs> a little bit, um, but um, but uh, I, I have imposed new budget constraints for 20 Yeah, well, and that's part of it, right? I mean, the idea was to make us all feel a little bit w less wealthy. I think the Fed did a pretty good job of that. Um, you know, as we feel less wealthy and as we put some of those constraints on, do you start to think that that inflation story uh, becomes a bit passe or starting to move a little bit behind us? I think so. Uh, and that's what we're seeing from the inflation data we're looking at, right? I mean, the most recent CPI print suggested that that inflation is moderating nicely. Now, we're nowhere near uh, the Fed's target. We're moving in the right direction. And I think we have to anticipate as we, as we look out on 2023 that this is going to be a period in which inflation is likely to continue to moderate. But um, we have to think of it in, in terms of the three buckets that Jay Powell laid out um, recently when he talked about inflation. Um, there is the, the goods uh, bucket. There is the housing uh, bucket, and then there is the services X housing bucket. And so clearly goods um, uh, inflation has come down very significantly. And housing, uh, despite the most recent CPI print, appears um, poised to roll over. I mean, clearly there's been a lot of pressure on the housing sector um, with mortgage rates going up so much. And, and uh, I, I think that that will have an impact on, on uh, housing inflation and, and help moderate it. But <clears throat> the real stubborn area is going to be services inflation, uh, especially because so much of that is driven by wage growth. So we are going to see inflation moderate, in my opinion, this year. Um, it's, it's just unlikely that we get to the Fed's inflation target by the end of this year. I think that's going to take more time. Jody, you heard Christina say it. My wage growth is going to be just fine this year. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we have that recorded. <laughs> Absolutely. We all have witnesses. You know, obviously, looking past the U.S., you know, we've seen the Eurozone has also had to deal with pretty aggressive tightening. How, how is the Eurozone economy holding up? 
Well, it's actually held up relatively well, given all the headwinds that it has faced in the last year. Not only has there been significant tightening, but of course, um, they have been subject to uh, very high inflation, especially coming from energy. I mean, there's just been a lot of hits to the Eurozone economy. And yet what we saw in the most recent uh, PMIs uh, is that while uh, they remain in contraction territory, they've actually improved. Um, and, And so that suggests to me a Eurozone economy that is quite resilient. What about China? I know the big headline there has been, you know, rolling back so many of those COVID measures, um, you know, that that were in place for so long. How is that adding up in terms of your growth outlook for China? Well, when we first sat down to talk about the outlook back in October, um, when we took a look at China and thought about what um, what could be possible for 2023. Um, we felt the economic outlook hinged on two factors, property and COVID. Um, and what we saw was that uh, Chinese policymakers have addressed um, the issues in the property sector. They released this 16-point plan uh, this fall. Um, that seems likely to have a material positive impact on the uh, on the property sector. So then the other issue is COVID. I mean, we've we've seen a pretty significant COVID uh, stringency in China and rolling that back is going to create some headwinds initially because of course there is a significant increase in COVID infections. But I, I think that opens the door uh, for significant economic growth Uh, as the year progresses. I think we just have to anticipate some headwinds in the near term, but this could be a a, a very positive year for for China growth. Alessia, let's bring you into the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Brian. Always a pleasure being with you. So I I know that you always like to think about it from the perspective of what phase we're in or what regime we're in within the cycle. How would you categorize this current environment where it seems like risk appetite may be picking up a bit from where we were, call it September, or maybe even a little bit in December. Yeah, the market has certainly since uh, late November, early December, has certainly started uh, uh, picking up a a much, much stronger tone. The way I, I would like to characterize it is that we have basically been waiting for that recession for six to nine months now, the most well-telegraphed recession <laughs> that, of course, <laughs> didn't happen. So since uh, since early December, what is happening is that uh, inflation and therefore speculation on the end of the tightening cycle, inflation is rolling over more quickly than growth is rolling over. So the market is feeling optimistic because it, it, it's finding that sweet spot now where inflation may be coming down, monetary, time, monetary policy tightening is coming to an end, while growth, as of today, is still holding up. That's, so that sounds like a soft landing. Is it a soft landing? And for investors, does it have to be a soft landing? Or have we already priced in a mild recession? I think right now soft lending is really the best way to characterize it. Basically, we have acknowledged that growth is, has been close to zero, uh, but now we can see light at the end of the tunnel and expect it to actually rebound rather than going into negative. So we will characterize that market reaction more consistent with the market pricing and recovery regime, right? Growth still being low, but actually improving. How long will that last? 
Well, this goes back to the eternal debate about the long and variable lags of monetary policy. I agree with Christina. At some point, it will be more obvious what the damage has been or will be from past monetary policy tightening. But it's not here, and it doesn't have to be that severe. The unemployment rate is still globally near all-time lows. So without a doubt, this is not the beginning of a new economic cycle, precisely because the unemployment rate is at all-time lows. But we are we are dealing with a soft landing, similar to Brian. I like to uh, I, I like to draw analogies. Maybe obviously the circumstances were very different. But remember how many fake recessions we had, such as in 2011, in 2015. To me, the relationship between the the, the economic situation and the market reaction is analogous to those. Those were very difficult years from a trading perspective, and there were large negative uh, uh, returns. But the economy ended up holding up, and eventually uh, the market recovered. Um, so that that's how I think the market is is pricing in uh, basically reduced risks of a recession uh, in timing, in duration of that recession, and potentially the magnitude of that recession. That's interesting. You bring up fifteen and eighteen. I mean, you know, fifteen was what a a one rate hike, a Chinese currency devaluation, 18 was a US-China trade war. In hindsight, do those pale in comparison to what we've just seen, a, a 450 basis point rate hike in nine months? Or, or do you, so, so I'm trying to get what you're saying. You're saying that we, it feels like a soft landing. We may still need to bump on the bottom a little bit. Is that, is that what you're suggesting? But, but we're not there yet? What I'm suggesting is uh, that the market is it's it's ill advised to position with bearish trades to position for a recession for too long as we all know positioning for a recession be it in credit in in, in fixed income in, in equities it's uh, it's an expensive proposition right waiting for that recession to happen is is difficult so unless you have the evidence staring at you that 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 recession is rising in probability no news is good news. And in, in front of no news or improving news, such as falling inflation and a, a toning down of hawkish rhetoric by central banks, those are catalysts for uh, a better market environment. That should not be ignored. Like, I guess my point is to say, yeah, the market is recovering, but wait, because a recession will eventually come, so fade it. No. Actually, thank you for asking that question. What I want to be clear on is that you need to acknowledge what the market is doing. And when the economy begins to deteriorate, when you begin to see those cracks, uh, be it the unemployment rate, be it uh, credit spreads, we have another chance at, at, at being more cautious and defensive. But right now, we are seeing some pretty convincing signs across all capital markets that uh, the that we should take seriously a potential rebound in economic activity, especially as Christina mentioned, in the weakest zip code, which is Europe. So Alessio, help me figure out what this means for portfolios and investors and asset allocation. You talked about some seeing some convincing signs. I mean, for those who are you know tactically minded, you know they're trying to figure out what they should be doing at this moment as we're looking for signs and looking for evidence. You know what what types of assets are you favoring? So for the last couple of months, where we have begin begun to see this this improving uh, uh, risk sentiment and falling inflation statistics, we have 
uh, gone back to overweight equities. Uh, in other words, we, we believe that it's appropriate to run above average risk uh, again after being very defensive in the second half of 2022. Uh, above average risk being expressed through both equities, but primarily risky credit. Uh, credit spreads are still wide above their long-term average, have started to come in, but they're still wide. You are still getting compensated as investors. We're now having the opportunity for 5 to 9% yields that we haven't seen uh, in the last 15 years. So it's a golden opportunity to rebuild income uh, in the portfolio, to harvest some credit risk. In this particular market, market context, uh, risky credit such as high yield emerging market debt or bank loans offer equity-like returns but with lower volatility, so that's important. In the equity space, I think it's um, it, it's appropriate to run some uh, slightly uh, la uh, some slight every, uh, equity overweight, but primarily within that equity um, composition, favor value over quality, favor small and mid caps over large caps. Uh, in other words, favor the more cyclical sectors and more cyclical uh, styles of the market. Let's go back to fixed income. When, you know, you talk about you know when you say five to nine percent, nine percent is pushing out in credit risk. So call it what a high yield bond index around nine percent. Is that enough in your mind to compensate for any type of default cycle that we may have? That, that's a good question. So uh, default. Uh, Harvesting that yield in a very diversified way, uh, it's, it's always the best strategy. I think defaults, if they occur, are um, they, given how delevered the sectors have been, how um, we have gone already through a large cleansing of, of the debt situation, both on the consumer side and on the corporate side, um, default rates, which will inevitably rise in the worst case scenario, uh, should not be large systemic uh, to lead to underperformance on a two, three year rolling basis on risky credit, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, especially for the risky credit cores that also have duration. Uh, so in that sense, emerging markets debt and high yield offer more duration than bank loans. And that duration always offers a little bit more of a ballast than the purest credit exposure. So, um, Yes, I think it's on a on a two three year rolling basis. These level of yields are are quite attractive in my mind. Now, Christina is always asking me what's what's the top question I'm getting from clients. So I will pose the top question I'm getting from clients to to you, Alessio. When you're thinking about <laughs> <laughs> when you're thinking about generating income and and you want to do so, perhaps call it in the treasury market. Are you taking advantage of two-year yields at four and a quarter, or are you moving out in the yield curve where you're only getting on a 10-year, say, 350, um, but, but does longer duration make more sense if the economy slows in here? That's a great question, and one that is really, really topical at the moment. For the first time in three years, we are moving away from flattening, flattening yield curve exposures. In other words, uh, the yield curve is now inverted by a full 100 basis points when you look from T-bills to 10-year treasuries. That, for our generation, is as, as flat as it has ever been. The only times the yield curve has been more inverted than that was in the 1970s, in the 1980s, where it got to negative 150. 
Obviously, the, the inflation situation today is comparable to that one, but it gives you an, an idea of the risk reward. So to answer your question, we are now starting to move out of the long end in terms of where do we choose to have our duration, button, uh, duration exposure. We're starting to come back up towards the two years and five years, uh, where you now can harvest four, four and a half percent yields. Uh, it takes basically a doubling of those yields for you to lose money on, on those bonds, right? Uh, so especially on the two-year, this is now becoming really, really attractive. The two-year, obviously, because we're going, we believe that the Fed will eventually pause and the market will begin to price in some easing. Whether the Fed delivers that soon or not, that's a different question. But the market always starts pricing in the beginning of the next cycle. Uh, being in two-year bonds and three-year bonds uh, might give us also an extra choose in terms of declining yields rather than being in cash at, at three months. So, yes, I think the, the front end of the curve is now starting to look quite attractive. All right. Well, Brian covered what the top question is from clients that we're hearing. So I'll ask my personal favorite question. And I want to ask you and Christina as well. You know, what are people not asking you? What What are you not hearing about that you think people should maybe be paying more attention to at the moment? Alessio, do you want to go ahead and start? And we, I'd like to hear from Christina as well. Well, Christina, I'm very curious about your opinion, but I am I am quite amazed by the lack of interest and inquiries on uh, non-U.S. assets, on emerging markets, on China, on Europe, uh, despite the fact that we are that a cycle has clearly ended, the growth versus value cycle. The monetary, the unconventional monetary policy cycle has clearly ended. These were major factors that contributed to the US dominance, the US excellence. All of these catalysts are one by one unwinding, and yet there is so much skepticism around investing money in international markets. The dollar is the euro went from 95 cents to 110 almost, and nobody's asking. So, what I think this is, we always focus on tactical, 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 but I think these tactical rotations are probably signaling the beginning of a new long term cycle of rotation and diversification out of the, the home bias in US assets into foreign assets. Before we hear Christina's opinion, Alessio, I just want, you know, obviously Bitcoin went from 16,000 to 18,000. So that's why nobody's paying attention in the, <laughs> the euro. Um, but talk about Europe because it's just been so negative, right? You have, you know, you have the conflict that's existing in Eastern Europe. You have concerns that Germany might not even be able to keep the plants operating because they don't have access to the commodities that run it. How do you get investors to think optimistically about Europe in that type of a backdrop? Generally speaking, what you, what you just outlined reminds me of, of a lesson that I learned over the years, which is we always need to find comfort in a narrative, and a narrative always obviously makes sense. The problem with narrative-driven investing is that you also need to mark the market. And when the pricing changes, the narrative is still in place, but the pricing is changing. What does that mean today? Europe remains the most geopolitically vulnerable and economically vulnerable region 
to the current situation. But we have been pricing that for 12 months. In other words, uh, as Christina mentioned, the PMIs are in recessionary territory, but they're starting to bounce back up. Consumer confidence has been at all-time depressed levels, well past even 2008 levels, and they're bouncing back up. The winter uh, uh, freeze that we were fearing because of what the implications would be for natural gas prices and energy provisions, the winter is turning to be more, uh, much milder than expected. So there is so many catalysts, one by one, that, again, the narrative has not changed, but the risk and the pricing around those catalysts is now improving meaningfully, which is why European equities uh, are reacting so positively. Uh, I think that's really what the, what the key question here, here is. And one more point. Let's not forget that Europe is the most cyclical continent around the, the most cyclical region in the globe. And with the China reopening trade in the horizon, that remains one of the regions that is likely to benefit the most from a global trade perspective. All right. So, Christina, question comes to you then. What topics are flying under the radar that you think people should be paying more attention to right now? Well, I absolutely agree with Alessio that um, one topic that we don't hear anything about, we don't see really very much interest at all in, is investing internationally, um, Europe, emerging markets. It's just not a focus for investors right now. And, um, and you know, Europe, it's all about beating expectations. And, and that's what we're seeing right now. I couldn't agree more with Alessia. You know, the other uh, topic that I think I'm not hearing enough about um, is, is what Alessio called, and I love this term, the golden opportunity uh, to rebuild income. And it really is. I, I think some have not realized just how robust yields are uh, on investment grade corporates, uh, on, on a, a number of different areas within fixed income. And, and I just think there's not enough interest and, and uh, focus there right now. All right, Brian, do you think we covered it? Anything else you wanna ask? I'm just still happy that we turned that calendar page, Jody. I mean, it's a, isn't this such a better vibe than what we were talking about, uh, call it midsummer? It does. It feels a lot better. So uh, let's just, you know, watch how it all turns out and shapes up. We've got a long way to go, but feeling a lot better after this conversation, that's for sure. We're feeling a lot better. And, and we know that Alessio and Christina are going to be with us along the way to keep providing their insights as events unfold throughout the year. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, we thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You've been listening to Invesco's Greater Possibilities podcast. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are based on current market conditions as of January 13th, 2023, and are subject to change without notice. These opinions may differ from those of other Invesco investment professionals. This does not constitute a recommendation of any investment strategy or product for a particular investor. Investors should consult a financial professional before making any investment decisions. Should this contain any forward-looking statements, understand they are not guarantees of future results. They involve risks, uncertainties, and assumptions. There can be no assurance that actual results will not differ materially from expectation. All investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. 
In general, stock values fluctuate sometimes widely in response to activities specific to the company as well as general market, economic, and political conditions. Fixed income investments are subject to credit risk of the issuer and the effects of changing interest rates. Interest rate risk refers to the risk that bond prices generally fall as interest rates rise and vice versa. An issuer may be unable to meet interest and or principal payments, thereby causing its instruments to decrease in value and lowering the issuer's credit rating. Junk bonds involve a greater risk of default or price changes due to changes in the issuer's credit quality. The values of junk bonds fluctuate more than those of high-quality bonds and can decline significantly over short time periods. Issuers of sovereign debt or the governmental authorities that control repayment may be unable or unwilling to repay principal or interest when due, and the fund may have limited recourse in the event of default. Without debt holder approval, some governmental debtors may be able to reschedule or restructure their debt payments or declare more on payments. The risks of investing in securities of foreign issuers, including emerging market issuers, can include fluctuations in foreign currencies, political and economic instability, and foreign taxation issues. A value style of investing is subject to the risk that valuations never improve or that the returns will trail other styles of investing or the overall stock markets. Stocks of small and mid-sized companies tend to be more vulnerable to adverse developments, may be more volatile, and may be illiquid or restricted as to resale. The Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC, is a 12-member committee of the Federal Reserve Board that meets regularly to set monetary policy, including the interest rates that are charged to banks. The Federal Reserve's dot plot is the chart that the central bank uses to illustrate its outlook for the path of interest rates. According to Bloomberg, the federal funds rate was 90 basis points as of December 31, 2021, and 450 basis points as of December 31, 2022. The federal funds rate is the rate at which banks lend balances to each other overnight. A basis point is one one-hundredth of a percentage point. Tightening is a monetary policy used by central banks to normalize balance sheets. The Consumer Price Index, or CPI, measures change in consumer prices as determined by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Purchasing Managers Indexes, or PMI, are based on monthly surveys of companies worldwide and gauge business conditions within the manufacturing and services sectors. Information on U.S. Economic Growth from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. Information on the U.S. Employment Rate from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics as of December 31, 2022. Information on credit spreads from Bloomberg as of December 31, 2022. Based on the Bloomberg U.S. Corporate Bond Index Option Adjusted Spread. The Bloomberg U.S. Corporate Bond Index measures the investment-grade, fixed-rate, taxable corporate bond market. The option-adjusted spread is the measurement of the spread of a fixed-income security rate and the risk-free rate of return, which is then adjusted to account for an embedded option such as calling back or redeeming the issue early. The reference to yield opportunities ranging from 5% to 9% are based on the yields to worst of the Bloomberg U.S. Corporate Bond Index and the Bloomberg U.S. High Yield Corporate Bond Index as of December 31, 2022. The Bloomberg U.S. High Yield Corporate Bond Index tracks the performance of below investment grade U.S. dollar denominated corporate bonds publicly issued in the U.S. domestic market. Yield to worst is the lowest potential yield an investor can receive on a bond without the issuer actually defaulting. Duration is a measure of the sensitivity of the price, the value of the principal, of a fixed income investment to a change in interest rates. Duration is expressed as a number of years. Information on two-year, five-year, and ten-year treasury yields from Bloomberg as of December 31, 2022. 
Information on current and historical inverted yield curves is from Bloomberg as of December 31st, 2022, based on the spread between the three-month and 10-year U.S. Treasury rates. The yield curve plots interest rates at a set point in time of bonds having equal credit quality but differing maturity dates to project future interest rate changes and economic activity. An inverted yield curve is one in which shorter-term bonds have a higher yield than longer-term bonds of the same credit quality. Information on the level of the euro from Bloomberg. Based on the move in the exchange rate between the euro and the U.S. dollar from October 2022 to January 12, 2023. Information on the price of Bitcoin from Bloomberg. Based on the price change of one Bitcoin from the beginning of 2023 to January 12, 2023. The Greater Possibilities Podcast is brought to you by Invesco Distributors, Inc.